Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right, another week and huge news from the NovaCare Complex as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 61. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with NFL.com fantasy football writer Matt Harmon. Now, if you have not heard of Matt, I urge you to keep listening because he does some excellent work on projecting the success of receivers in the NFL by charting the success they have running the different routes on the route tree. So we'll talk about all the Eagles receivers with Matt. Next up, we've got two technique where I caught up with Eagles defensive back Jalen Watkins to talk about defending those wide receivers down in the red zone in press coverage situations. We talked about this in the show in the past about corners playing press, but it's a little bit of a different story down near the goal line. Jalen will tell us why. Then we wrap it all up with Saturday scouting where we look back at Eagles defensive tackle Mike Martin coming out of Michigan. He was a third-round pick of the Tennessee Titans back in 2012. So I'm going to go back and revisit my notes on him coming out of the Wolverines program. I remember specifically being very intrigued by him down at the Senior Bowl, so we'll talk about Martin to wrap this show up. We've got a ton to get into, but before we get into everything, I want to talk about Fletcher Cox and the huge extension that he signed on Monday night. Huge news from the NovaCare Complex. Like I said earlier, Fletcher is clearly the best player on this team in terms of talent. And I can go back 10 episodes ago, 10 weeks ago, we had Stephen White, former NFL defensive lineman, does a great job writing for SB Nation. And he came on the show and talked about how well Fletcher Cox is going to adapt going back to a one-gap scheme. Let's get to a quick clip from that interview right now. You get to run around, guys, and show off your athleticism when you're in that 4-3 attacking defense, which is what you guys are transitioning to. You know, a guy like Fletcher Cox had to fight his butt off to get through the middle of a guard, and then here comes the center trying to help him just to get to the quarterback. So it's really remarkable you know, kind of uh, the way he was able to get to the quarterback last year. But you put him on an edge, and now more than likely that guard isn't going to get any help from the center because Fletcher is going to be able to blow by him right now. It's like, you know, you woke up in heaven, basically. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I saw where he tweeted out, like, you know, uh, I guess when the rumors were uh, about the, the new defensive coordinator, they were going to a 4-3, I'd expect – Fletcher Cox to have a career year this year, man. He's going to be a monster in that kind of defense. All right, so Stephen there explained why you move Fletcher Cox off the edge. And when he says the edge, he means between two blockers, not necessarily off the edge as a defensive end, but lining up in a gap as opposed to head up on an offensive lineman. When you put him out on the edge and you're asking him to run up field and disrupt – He's really going to produce in that kind of a scheme. And a lot of people, I see some people you know, questioning, oh, that's a lot of money to give to a defensive tackle. That's not how I look at it at all. And I would imagine that's not how the Eagles look at it at all. You're talking about giving a lot of money to a disruptor in the front seven. Now, whether that disruption comes from an outside linebacker or a defensive end or a defensive tackle, it does not matter. You're getting quality disruption and good production from a defensive 
front seven playmaker, and that's exactly what Fletcher Cox is. He's one of the best in the NFL at that, and whether it's the run game or the passing game, he impacts the game on a weekly basis. So very excited for Fletcher, very excited to see him play in Jim Schwartz's 4-3 scheme this fall. But uh, we've got a lot to get into. Like I said, I caught up with NFL.com's Matt Harmon to talk about the Eagles receiving core. Let's get things rolling with Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Very happy to be joined by Matt Harmon, who you could follow on Twitter at Matt Harmon underscore BYB. Matt does a great job for NFL.com as a fantasy writer and as a host of the Backyard Banter podcast, as well as a slew of other podcasts that he's on each and every week. Matt, I appreciate the time. You're a busy man. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Fran. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, ever since I was on the on the pod with you and Ross Tucker, the College Draft Podcast. So it's good to good to finally talk to you, do this show now that I'm back out of the wilderness and uh, and right back to football, man. It's like as soon as as soon as I as soon as I touch down here, it's right back to it. So it's good to be talking to you today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, it was very interesting following your journey from uh, the East Coast back to the Left Coast and seeing all the different wildlife you came across and the the adventures of Charlie. If you don't follow Matt, Matt is a great follow on Twitter. Again, at Matt Harmon underscore BYB. But I mentioned the Backyard Banter podcast, and you do a lot of great work from an audio standpoint. But let's first dive into your work with the reception perception. And the, you know, in case there are any fans out here in Philadelphia that are not familiar with your process, Take us through it. How did it start? How has it evolved? What do we need to know about the reception perception? Oh, man. Well, so essentially what reception perception is from a very basic standpoint is it's just a unique, in-depth methodology to evaluate the wide receiver position. And what I do is for over an eight-game sample for NFL players and a six-game sample for college players, because that's where I've found that the data normalizes and it's indicative over what they do for a full season – I go in and I chart every route that they run in those games. Uh, I chart how often they run each particular route, how often they get open on each route, uh, against what type of coverage are they most successful, man, zone, press, double coverage. And there's also some ancillary metrics like uh, contested catch conversion rate um, and how often they break tackles in space. So really it gives you a full, um, full picture of what a wide receiver does well, where he fits, uh, what type of routes he's most successful in? So, how what what type what area of the field is he getting most open? And I think that really why I started it was, you know, I, I did a lot of work in school evaluating uh, individuals in society, and was originally going to go back to school to get a PhD in that sort of work before I just decided, hey, I'm going to write about football instead, and uh, that's what I do now. Uh, I, I was really just fascinated with like making quantifiable data and statistics and analytics out of qualitative uh, situations. And I think like watching film, as you know, Fran, you watch probably more film than many people. Uh, it's, it's really a qualitative art. It's a, like, it's very, your brain can play tricks on you when you do it too. You know, you, you really emphasize the highs and the lows. And so I really wanted to come up with a system with the wide receiver position, which I feel is very anecdotally analyzed because you don't see it on the broadcast tape or anything like that. I want to really just understand like how often these guys get open and how good they are and really track things from, from that perspective. So that's kind of a broad view scale of what it is and why, why I started doing it. So as you go through some of these, when you're charting different receivers, 
what are some of the common things that pop up that kind of surprise you? You know, you go in and let's say you're watching a receiver, you're watching a guy like Jordan Matthews, and you go in thinking one thing, but you come out of it seeing something diff- completely different. What kind of pictures do you ultimately see that surprise you more often than not? I think from a very like general perspective, uh, I, I being able to kind of defeat like a really public narrative or just because, you know, unfortunately there's so many players to watch, even just in the wide receiver position, but also from the league in general that, you know, sometimes you'll see something like over a few plays and you make a, a large conclusion and we all do this like, oh, this guy struggles to get off the jam. He's not good against press coverage. But then when you go in and you watch it from a route to route basis and you chart all the results out, that's something that tends to like, be, always be kind of shocking just like I said you know getting past what your brain is perceiving and really seeing it come together from a numbers perspective is really important um, there's been plenty of guys that I've been watching him and been like man this guy is doing really well but then you know it comes back kind of average in reception perception and it kind of forces you to wonder like well am I emphasizing something you know that uh, that's not necessarily like there's a couple of examples from the last two years guys that I think really have gotten buoyed their stock, whether it's in fantasy or just in NFL circles, but based off like small sample, big plays. Devontae Adams was a really good example from his rookie year. People thought that he really flashed. He had a good, he had a good rookie season and people were projecting really big things uh, this past year for him. But in his reception perception, all his scores were well, well below the average, you know, kind of like in the bottom 10% of the league. And I was saying that he just, it was just a player that, you know, he had some flashes, but, I think people were extrapolating those flashes into uh, into big big things that weren't necessarily really taking place on the field. So I think that's something that I always find to be interesting when there's just like a prevailing narrative um, about a player, and then you kind of go in and you again you chart everything out and you keep a really good log of what you uh, of what you see. Then I think it really kind of helps you understand a player better. What, it's interesting that you brought that up because that's an, an example, obviously, of the, some of that positivity bias where you know you see a guy show really positive flashes and everybody kind of hangs on to that. And I've seen you, you've brought up a couple of different times in a couple of different spaces negativity bias and how that's a really interesting thing to follow where people see drops. And if you see one or two drops, those stay with you and you think, oh, this guy really has trouble catching the football, where when you look at that over an eight game or a six game stretch, it's not always the case. And it's really interesting, too, when you talk about route running, I always get back, and I, I think I've said this on another podcast, I don't think I've ever said it here, is that people look at guys, you know, everybody now can GIF things and, you know, can cut quick videos of a guy, and you'll see a, a player run a sluggo or some kind of double move, and everyone says, oh, man, this guy's such a great route runner. But really, I mean, that, those routes, those are made, those, they, the coaches call those plays to get open. I mean, that's the purpose of that route. Uh, what are some of the routes that you think are, some of the, one of the benchmarks, almost a litmus test of a guy that, you know, this guy's a good route runner because he succeeds at X. Uh, I mean, it, it really depends, like, on a player-to-player basis. I'll say that just kind of to start off with. But routes that, like, if you score really well in reception perception on these few routes, I think it's indica- indicative of a very good route runner. Uh, like, the out route and the comeback route are two of the ones that are harder to score well on, especially comebacks. And that's, like... Odell Beckham, I think, has what I would really kind of categorize as an unfair ability to run a comeback route, you know, to really know when to, again, it's all about selling a different route, you know, selling the, the, the idea that on the cornerback that you're going to go vertical and then being able to break back, whether it is on the curl or the comeback, and being able to use your time, like use timing, 
you know, intelligence and also the fluidity of your hips and your feet to break back like that. That's a route that if I see a guy run some good, clean, crisp comeback routes over a large sample size, that's a guy that I would say is, is a really good uh, route runner. You know, so that's one. And the out route is another one, too, that it's hard for the quarterback to make those throws, too. So you really have to have some good timing and execution in order to get separation. Uh, there was a couple of times when watching Travis Benjamin this year, somebody that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say is one of the best route runners in the league. But there were several times this year when charting him that I saw him run some really impressive out routes. And that's another one that I think takes a lot of timing. And again, you're just you're afforded very small windows for the quarterback to throw into. And he presented some really good lanes there. So I like, I like, he was really impressive to me. Uh, and yeah, I mean, slants and curls and, and the, you know, the post routes, those are designed to get, give wide windows for the receivers to, to give the quarterback to throw into. So that's definitely important. You know, to like, you can't rate each route the same, but it's also at the same time, it's important to, you know, judge a player based on what they're asked to do. Not necessarily, especially when you're talking about college prospects and Corey Coleman was a good example that, you know, you can't always just judge them on what they're asked to do. You got to judge them on how well they execute their assignments. Well, I, I'm really, and to give listeners a, a view behind the curtain, we we reviewed basically what we were going to talk about a little bit beforehand. But I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that question, and that's the exact answer that I would have given was that that comeback route. I mean, to me, that is the one route that if a if a receiver can run that at a high level, that's one of the few benchmarks of a good route runner. You know, whether it's at the college level or in the NFL. And one of the one of the things I think I've used this analogy in the past, just because a guy runs a good sluggo and can get open on a good sluggo, that's like a compare. That's comparing and saying, oh, my mom's a great driver because she stops at every stop sign. You know, like that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Just because you do that well doesn't necessarily mean that she's a great driver. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. That's a good analogy to make. Like, you know, there's a you got to do a little bit beyond the basics to to say that you're a great route runner. You know, a player like Sterling Shepard's a good example of that mixed so much nuance and technique into the different routes that he ran in college, and that's why I was a really big fan of him. We talked about him on the College Draft podcast, of course. And yeah, so you're you're always looking for those things, those you know, the subtleties in different players. Uh, you know, again, another good example that that not a lot of people were on. Uh, Michael Crabtree going to the Raiders this past year, but he was a reception perception star even in his last year in the 49ers when he wasn't very productive. And he had an 82.1% success rate on the comeback that 2014 season, 80% on the out route. That was a big reason why I was a big fan of that signing. And when a lot of other people weren't, because just because he wasn't making plays with a quarterback that, you know, Colin Kaepernick is very athletic, but he's not much of a timing or anticipatory passer. And I think I'm probably being kind when I say that. So it just was a guy that was a really good route runner, but didn't fit with the quarterback. So it's important to, it's always important to know what type of player and where they fit. Matt, how do you factor in the, the quarterback and the level of play from that position when you're, when you're looking at these receivers in terms of success rate? And you talk about a Colin Kaepernick to a Michael Crabtree. How does that factor into the equation ultimately for the final reception perception grade? You know, I, I, I was actually just recording an episode of my podcast with uh, George Criticos from Dynasty League Football. And, you know, he's an analytics guy, so we were having a good discussion about that. And, and you know, I was saying and it's hard to – it's hard in football to, to take a statistic and, and take it as a hard and fast point, a, a, a concrete point about one particular player because, you know, as we know, there's 11 guys out on the field at the same time. There's the very, there's just so many variables. It's hard to isolate a player into one numerical uh, statistic. 
But I try to be as agnostic as possible when it comes to the quarterback position influencing the wide receivers because the goal of reception perception is to divorce the wide receiver from his surroundings, particularly isolate him on what he is doing uh, on the field against the cornerbacks or the zone defense that he's facing. So I try to just not let it influence me much at all. You know, I, I try to just as much as possible when I'm charting these guys, I'm just watching the wide receiver and the cornerback and judging how well they do against each other and just not even paying attention to the quarterback or even and that's why I watch things on a route to route basis because you know you'll you'll see some analysts out there be like well I watched all of this guy's targets from 2015 and you know here's my conclusions based off that but I think it's important to take into account every route that they run I see because I, I like to look at things as the, the route is the opportunity and whether you get open or not is well you're successful you know and the target and the, the influence of the quarterback is just another variable so again to in order to try to isolate the receiver as much as possible i try to eliminate those other variables so the quarterback is kind of the top one a couple of minutes ago you mentioned Corey coleman and that, and that baylor offense and how you have to factor in not just how well a guy does but what is he asked to do in that scheme and how well does he execute that and one of the narratives that i think has been really interesting surrounding the Eagles over the last few years is just the receiver position inside the, the structure of the Chip Kelly offense and how many different routes they were asked to run and how that wasn't as many. It wasn't as, uh, as varied a route tree as you may see around the NFL. Now, obviously, the, the narrative has kind of grown to be a little bit more than what reality is. As you, as you know, that tends to always be the case. But how do you factor that in when you're projecting guys to the next, for next year? So you're looking at 2016. You've got a new offensive system here in Philadelphia with Doug Peterson, with Frank Reich, but a lot of familiar faces here in the receiving core, guys like Jordan Matthews and Josh Huff. What are some of the things that you do to kind of look at those two schemes and how do you look at a scheme like Chip Kelly's where the route tree isn't as diverse as you see in other schemes? Well, I think it's important to go then and kind of look at players that played for that offensive court, you know, like guys that played with the Chiefs last year. Uh, under Doug Peterson, go back and look at some of their routes. I looked at Albert Wilson, who's like a personal pet project favorite of mine uh, that I'll be writing about here soon, probably. Uh, so looking at the routes that a player like that, or a Jeremy Macklin that played for the Chiefs, uh, how much of a how much of a, of a of a similarity is between their route trees and what the Eagles were doing last year? And of course, you know, I think the one thing that, that everybody says about the Chiefs and, and Doug Peterson and Andy Reid's offense there is it's very conservative. You know, there's a lot of quick hitting stuff and I think those receivers in Chip Kelly's offense will be used to running a lot of high, uh, a high percentage of slant routes. That was one of Jordan Matthews' highest run routes last year, and even into his rookie year before that. So, I think there'll be some there'll some be some crossover there. But so I think it's important to go back and look at former coaches' history and in, in a previous spot, and also just you know what are what are they most successful at uh, on on the route tree, and and will that fit with the quarterback that they're playing with too, because I think that it's also important to, to design the routes that you're using based off of, um, based off of the quarterback that you're playing with. But the, it is, it's, a, it is, a, it's a bit of a chore with the, with the Chip Kelly offenses or the, a lot of these collegiate offenses, especially programs like Baylor and the derivatives there, like they're just because of the pace that the offense run. It's hard to get a, a feel of like, what, how can they really run a other routes when they're running these, you know, high percentage, more simplistic routes because of the pace that they're trying to keep up with. It's, it's a bit of a chore trying to project that. So you mentioned Jordan Matthews and the, and the slant route and some of the success he had with that route both last year and his rookie season. What are your overall feelings on Jordan Matthews? How has he done in the past 
coming out of reception perception? You know, we're at a bit of a crossroads in Matthew's career, kind of, which is funny because he's been, you know, for a younger guy, he's been pretty productive uh, from a raw stats perspective, but it does feel like we're at a, kind of like a, a crossroads for him, you know, especially with the news that Peterson said uh, that he's better on the inside. He's good on the outside, but he's better on the inside, which that's been a big debate about him really going back to when he was drafted. Can he play on the outside or is he better in the slot? Can he only function in the slot? And I think reception perception's verdict on him from earlier in his rookie season was, was very, was really kind of indicative that that, that is the role that he should play. Uh, he had a below average success rate against man coverage, but at a well above average success rate against zone coverage. And it was also better than you'd expect getting off press coverage. But of course, he's not facing press coverage very often in the slot and going against so much zone. So to me, I was like, at the end of that rookie season, I was like, you know, this is a guy that fills this role very well. Um, there's some belief with how, with some of his techniques against press coverage that he can function on the outside. But, you know, I think that so much about player evaluation is identifying what they do well and then asking them to continually do that. And I think that. Uh, I think that you look at Jordan Matthews this season, the first half of the year was, was really slow. I mean, there were so, especially in the middle of the year, there was like just some disastrously unproductive stretches. You know, we mentioned drops earlier. That's not a big part of my evaluation process, but you know, he did have some drop issues there at the beginning of the year, but he definitely seemed to play much better at the end of the season and his reception perception numbers, which were frankly pretty disastrous in the first uh, first half of the season, they, they improved a little bit over the second half of the year. So, like I said, I think we're at a weird crossroads with him right now, but I, I think even just after a few OTA practices, it seems that Peterson is also catching on with the fact that, you know, this is a guy that had a very specific designed role in Chip Kelly's offense, and he might be best in that role. And that's, that's again, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, he's a second-round pick with some good athletic measurables and a good po- productive collegiate uh, history. But I think so far what we've seen of him is that he, you know, he kind of is what he is. And, but, that's not, but that's not bad. That's, he's a valuable part of the passing game. But I think they're still, looking for, they're still looking for that outside presence, you know, a guy that can stretch the field and be a little bit more of a target hog than Matthews has been at this point in his career. Well, that's why I think that the one signing that I feel like has gone under the radar a little bit, and obviously, look, this guy hasn't been super, super productive, certainly not to the level that many expected coming out of LSU. That's former second-round pick of the New York Giants, Ruben Randall, who signed here in Philadelphia this past offseason. What do you think of Randall? What has his uh, output been like from the reception perception so far through his career? Yeah, I mean, it it, it certainly hasn't been uh, the most consistent career for Ruben Randall. Uh, even, you know, at the end of 2014, I think it was, and even at, during stretches of last year, he had some really big-time reception-perception games. But at the same time, I think the, the, the book on Randall is that he's not a good, consistent route runner, and he, his technique tends to come and go, you know, for whatever reason that might be. Uh, and I think that definitely plays out in reception-perception. He's had some pretty above or below-average games and – frankly, some pretty disastrous ones from a, from a creating separation point. So, I, I mean, but I think that he can be a part of the equation there in Philadelphia, but I think they're, they've got to be hoping that some of the younger guys are, are going to take a, a next step or anything like that. Um, I, I wouldn't, I would hope that they're not relying too much on Randall because while he definitely has some physical ability and he's, he's always had some solid contested catch conversion rate scores, 
But if they're looking for more of a uh, of a timing and execution player, which I think is is a pretty big emphasis in the route schemes that Peterson and, and Reed like to run in Kansas City, I don't know that Reuben Randall is that player. All right, Matt. Well, really, really great stuff. Thanks again for joining us here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. We'll have to talk to you again very soon. Hey, anytime, Fran. Thank you so much for having me. Great stuff from Matt. And again, you could follow him on Twitter just like I do, at Matt Harmon underscore BYB. And while you're at it, I'm at FDuffy3. That's where I post all of the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce here at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I really appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on social media. That's one way to support the show. But the other is to go onto iTunes, go on to Stitcher, give us a rating, and leave us a comment. And I want to give a shout-out to write him who rated the show recently and left a question. I love when people leave questions because it allows us to further discussion here on the podcast. And Wright him wants to know, if teams use the linebacker spy as a tool only against athletic quarterbacks and specific weapons on offense, or if it can be used as part of a base scheme with a rangy athletic linebacker that can get into coverage and read the quarterback's eyes or key in on running backs. And the answer to that is, of course, that can absolutely be factored in. But Here's the thing is that teams don't necessarily refer to that as a spy. When you talk about a spy, you're talking about a defender that is going to mirror a quarterback or mirror an offensive player from sideline to sideline laterally, you know, parallel to the line of scrimmage. You've seen that in the past with what the Eagles have done to defend Cam Newton, Russell Wilson, RG3 as well during his heyday early in his career with Washington. But now when you're talking about someone else that's going to just basically spot drop, that's what you're talking about, is someone that's going to spot drop in zone coverage, play underneath with their eyes on the quarterback. We've talked about that with Tony Dungy in the past, with what he asked his defenders to do in the Tampa 2 scheme. Really, it can come down to what you've seen D'Amico Ryans, what he had done in this defense for the last four years as an underneath defender and what some people would call a cover one man free, where you have one deep safety man coverage across the board and that one underneath defender in the middle of the field. That's what that linebacker is doing underneath. Is they're, they're basically allowed to give help to the players to their side of them, whether it's linebackers or slot corners, but then also read the quarterback's eyes, read to see where the play is going, impact the run game, because obviously he's going to have some responsibility in the run fit as well. But you could absolutely take advantage of those rangy linebackers, or, or if it's a safety, take advantage of those rangy, rangy defender skill sets in a lot of different ways to help other defenders and, and be a part of the defensive game plan. So great question there from Wright Him, and thanks so much to everybody out there for the continued support of the show and all of the rest of our podcast offerings here on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. But let's keep this show going. I told you earlier we would jump into the locker room with Jalen Watkins to talk about playing press coverage down in the red zone. Let's get to that conversation now in two technique. Time to get inside the mind of a player. It's time for two technique. Here now with Eagles defensive back Jalen Watkins. And Jalen, you and I have talked in the past about playing press coverage as a defensive back. I wanted to ask you today the difference between playing press coverage in normal down and distance situations versus playing press coverage down in the red zone. What's the big difference in your mind in those two different situations? Um, the big difference really is just uh, you got to understand that the, it's a shorter field. So um, you also have the back of the end zone that, is, that comes into play for you. So you can be more aggressive. Um, all the balls are going to be back shoulder. Another part of the game comes in, which you have to be more physical. Um, out in the field, you know, you get all kind of routes, and the, the, the long ball or the deep ball is going to be over the shoulder opposed to back shoulder. So once you get in the red zone, 
coaches teach us to tidy up, play more inside, force everything outside, and um, play through the receiver's hands too because when you're in the field, you can turn and look and make an interception, but the throws are so quick in the, in the uh, red zone that uh, you turn into the receiver and you play through his hands for the most part. I've talked with some of your teammates in the past about one-hand jam versus two-hand jam. Is, are you more likely to use a two-hand? Obviously, it's a, a case-by-case scenario, but are you more likely to go two-hand when you're down in the red zone? Uh, you know, it, it would be, if, if, if I was going to two-hand jam, it would be in the red zone simply because if, the receiver, if I missed or the receiver actually slapped my hands down, like I said, you have the back of the end zone working for you. So um, even if you, you know, get spun around, whatever, it's still a chance because the field's shorter. In the field, I'll probably never two-hand jam unless a guy's really uh, not that good, great at uh, releasing off the ball. Outstanding stuff there from Jalen. He did a great job breaking down how to play press coverage down in the red zone. So I'm going to quickly break down how to subscribe to a podcast. And if you're listening to this on the Eagles app or on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and you like what you hear, it's really easy. All you do is go to your mobile device, whether it's your phone or whether it's your tablet, you find your local podcast app and you just search Eagle Eye in the Sky. You hit subscribe and now the show downloads automatically to your phone every week and you can listen whenever you want. You can listen when you're at the gym. You can listen when you're walking your dog, you're folding your laundry, when you're driving down the shore because that's the best part. You can listen whenever and wherever you want and while you're at it, you can go and subscribe to the Eagles Insider Podcast with Chris McPherson and Alex Smith, the Journey to the Draft Podcast. That'll return once week one of the season starts this fall. The Eagles Live Podcast with Dave Spadaro, a ton of great access and interviews on that podcast. And of course, the College Draft Podcast with myself, and Ross Tucker, we just had a great episode this week, actually, talking about the quarterback position and what you do to evaluate trait by trait with NFL Film Senior Producer Greg Cosell. There's a ton of great podcasts out there. You just have to know where to look. But enough about all that with podcasts. Let's wrap this one up with, like we do each and every week with Saturday Scouting. It's time for Saturday Scouting. All right, so with Fletcher Cox signing his new deal Monday night, I figured let's go back and look at Mike Martin, who was bought in in free agency this past offseason as a backup to Benny Logan and Fletcher Cox. What can he bring to the table? He's a former third-round pick for the Tennessee Titans, has played there for the last four years. What can he offer? So we go back to his notes coming out of Michigan, and he was a three-year starter for the Michigan Wolverines. He was six, came in at, at 6013, 304 pounds. So six foot one and three-eighths inches, 304 pounds a strong, powerful defensive tackle that plays with great leverage inside, generates a strong pass rush because of his technique and his natural pad level. So that's where a lot of people knock him because of the size. But you know what? When you can play with great leverage inside, we've talked about that with Brandon Graham in the past. Is he a little bit shorter than some defensive end, outside linebacker player? Absolutely. But when you have that, uh, that, that shorter height, that allows you also to play with great leverage if you know how to use it. Mike Martin was one of those players at the University of Michigan, just like Brandon Graham. Uh, ironically, with the Wolverines. Very tough to move off a spot in the run game, and he anchors down very, very well against double teams and a very high-motor kid, very active, can play sideline to sideline. He brings a nastiness and a toughness that you don't often get for defensive tackles his size. I really, really liked his play personality during his time at Michigan. Made a lot of plays in pursuit on tape. 
from a negative standpoint, he was a little bit undersized, like we talked about. We'll need to continue to add weight and as he transitions to a nose tackle role at the next level. Didn't offer a ton of third down value as a pass rusher. Was a more of a high motor guy as opposed to an outstanding athlete for the position. I want to continue to see him improve his hand use. So I'm excited to see him get into camp, get into the preseason, and how he looks on tape from that respect. Overall, a try-hard player that brings a level of toughness that you need to be an effective NFL player. Wasn't sure that he was going to be that standout starter as a three technique or if he was big enough to hold up as a nose tackle, but can fit in as a backup at either spot. And I think that's the role, the exact role that he's going to play in Jim Schwartz's defense this fall behind Benny Logan, behind Fletcher Cox can help both spots out and come in and be a factor for a handful of snaps a game. I do see a nice option as a 4-3 nose tackle, probably his best spot behind Benny Logan. So thanks again to Matt Harmon, to Jalen Watkins, and all of you out there listening, whether you're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and of course on PhiladelphiaEagles.com or the Eagles mobile app. Thank you. And again, if you get the time, Rate the show, leave us a comment, and let us know what you think. You can shoot us a question. I want to hear from everybody out there and keep all of you happy. So wherever you listen, you just go on, shoot us a comment, and we can keep making this show better each and every week. All that being said, another show in the books here in the Eagle Line the Sky podcast from my producer, BT. I'm Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week.